2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. They're the co-hosts. They're from Long Form. Hey. How you guys doing? Ev- uh, Aaron, you're having a bad day. Well, I'm trying to get um, trying to get the uh, cable uh, installed on my house so I can DVR these World Cup games. Uh, I just heard like a you used a tone of voice on the phone with the cable guy that I've never heard you use before. I think I terrified our office manager or maybe um, taught him how it's done. <laughs> Uh, on the phone with Showed that Time, man what's up Time Warner cable I'm sure it'll work too I'm sure Time Warner will bend to your wishes And I, you know what Once you do get that cable Boy will the service be fantastic Well that, what I was going to say is We do sponsorships Where we, we we promote things And often things that we really like I think we should have a Also a demerit section of the show Where we uh, lambast a service I feel like uh, you lambasting products Should really be a standalone podcast Time Warner cable one of the worst companies in America. <laughs> I said it here. You heard it here first. Uh, thank you for your internet, though. Um, but we we have. Oh no, no. We, I was getting ahead of myself talking about our sponsors. I don't. I don't even want to talk about our sponsors like in the same minute as I talked about Time Warner. So Cable. let's talk about the guest. Who who's on the no, show? I thought Aaron was just going to keep talking for an additional minute. Yeah, um, Aaron's actually <laughs> making this podcast the Aaron Lambast Products yeah. podcast. Um, who, who's on the show this week, Evan? This week we have Tanahasi Coates. So longtime listeners will know that Tanahasi was on uh, in one of the earliest shows, and we had him back in part because it's been a while, and in part because he has this uh, incredible story that's on the cover of The Atlantic this month about reparations, and uh, as you might expect, he was incredibly insightful and great to talk to. What a charismatic guy. No, you should definitely read the article before you listen to this, um, because, I mean, it only will take you approximately 75 minutes to read, and it's excellent, um, but I, it, I think the conversation is better if you've if you've read read the article first. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. I would agree with that. And there's yeah. a couple of side pieces, we'll put them in the show notes, that he wrote, that he came out well with about writing this article. So this article is in total about one semester worth of work for your college. Seems like you've had a lot of uh, insights about this interview, a lot of thoughts after yeah, listening to it. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. a lot yeah. of opinions on how okay, other people should I haven't to actually it. listened to it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to guide our listeners. Do you have any sponsors this week? Like real, like ones, like positive ones? Well, I mean, I could never be anything but positive about Tiny Letter. Uh, it's an email newsletter service from the good people at MailChimp. Uh, there's no easier way to get a newsletter going, and you should do it today. Great customer service. Now, we're about to do something that happens very rarely on this show, which is Evan is going to talk about a sponsor. Don't normally do the sponsorships, but I'm so excited about this. I had to do it myself. It is the book. I am Zlatan by Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Uh, if you don't know him, he's a Swedish soccer player. Very sadly, he's not in the World Cup, uh, which is a shame for all viewers because Sweden didn't make it. But the book is out in the U.S. and uh, it's really funny. And he actually has a really fascinating background. And if you like sports books at all, you will really love this book. Also, we keep the uh, the ad edit wall pretty tight, but I will say that if Zlatan Ibrahimovic wants to come on the show, <laughs> I will definitely interview him. He just comes on and says, "I am Zlatan." <laughs> yeah, this is. I mean, this book's getting a lot of. Uh, I feel like a lot of buzz. It's like kind of one of the the best sports biographies in, in a few years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What would, what would you What would you recommend people do before reading this book? Um, I would go on YouTube. And I would watch uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic's like greatest goals, of which there are many. And he's had some 
fantastic moments at press conferences. He's one of the great egos of our time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's no, we're not going to stay away from a transition there, but here's Evan with Tana Hasikots. So, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very, uh, I think you may be our third repeat guest. You, you were on like number seven, and we're okay. almost on, we're coming up on number 100. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, I went, I went back and tried to listen to uh, the one that we recorded, which, first of all, Sound quality is not. <laughs> we're, a lot, we're a lot better on that front, but also uh, I don't really I don't like to listen to my own uh, voice, so I have a hard time going, getting through them. But it was interesting to listen to it because one of the, we were talking a lot at that time about this Obama essay that you had just written, mm-hmm, big mm-hmm. cover story for the Atlantic, mm-hmm. and I was asking you about your book and how a lot of it seemed like you were bringing to bear on this story a lot of. A, history, a lot of knowledge that you had gained over your entire lifetime, you know, through your father, through... That's funny. And then you said, you pretty, there's no way you'll remember this, but you said, yeah, it's, it makes me kind of sad to hear you say that because I feel like I, don't, I won't get to do that again. Like, there's no other story that I can yeah. bring all that knowledge to bear on. Yeah. And here we are, we're talking about, we're here to talk, That's a I lesson. think, <laughs> a lot about this reparations piece that is... Uh, is you know, it's being talked about everywhere. We were just talking before about all the media that mm-hmm. you've been doing for it. And it seemed like actually uh, there were more, the, you know, there was more. <laughs> you would not run out the string on your past knowledge. Yeah, but, yeah. but that's actually the th- kind of where I wanted to start, which is that someone who just read this piece, uh, and it's an amazing piece, and I think people should go read it before trying to engage with the ideas of it in a kind of like mm-hmm. thumbnail way. Right, right, right. But uh, they may not see that it, it feels to me like from the blog and everything else that this is actually like part of a larger project. Yeah, and I thought it's so funny, man, that you met. I, I don't remember saying that, but I remember feeling that way. So yeah. I'm sure I said it. I mean, I remember very much like feeling that way. And I was very happy, you know, articles out. I was very proud of it. And um as you said, it was like so much, like it was this accumulation, and I thought, well, well, that's it, you know, that's the peak, and I, I'm trying to, like, I, I, how do you envision this? I mean, is it, you know, you actually, you, you, you kind of, you hit me with that question. That's actually a hard one, because, you know, it, I often wonder, like, what's happening here? Like, there, there's a lot, we say, okay, this is everything I know here, right? Everything, yeah. and it's applied to this particular story in this particular way. Everything I know about the subject is thrown at this. And it's very easy, I think, to feel like you won't have another insight, and you know, I don't know if you had this happen to you, man, but when I first started in the field, um, and I would do a story, and long form is such a big thing. You know what I mean? It's always so long. Yeah, I mean, literally, the word is long. Investment. It's an investment. Yeah. And you think, I would have these times where I was like, I will never think of anything again. Yeah. Like, I just won't. Like, I just, there's no way I could possibly have another idea. I can't do that again. And I think part of it is um, with a piece like that, you know, I got the pitch note up on my blog, too. You know, yeah, you, I saw that. Yeah, you go from this really abstract sort of typed out thing to this thing that's built. And it's very hard to see. It almost feels like a kind of magic. Like, how the hell does that happen? Like, somebody else, like, you almost feel like somebody else did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you know you did it. You know you were there for every, like, I can, you know, outline the process of going through it. But the minute you see it in the magazine, the minute you see it online, the minute you see it published, it's like, well, that thing's damn near alive. Like, it's like a kid or something. Like, what the hell? <laughs> So trying to imagine that again, I mean, yeah. I don't even know what that, I was just down in D.C. talking to my editors, and, you know, we got some ideas, but, like, how that gets to something, I mean, I, I don't know. Well, let's talk about how this one, how it happened with this one. So you did, you wrote a blog post that really describes the evolution of the story, but right. uh, but maybe give give a little background here. Right. So I, I, like, I, I'm working, actually working on a longer one, too, to try to incorporate all my sources that I, that I read, but, um... I read this piece in the New York Times, and it was about um, a suit against Stuyvesant. Um, and there were these Asians and Asian Americans in the country, Asian immigrants and, you know, who are coming in, and Asian Americans who are already here, who were just, Stuyvesant is just a straight test. You know what I mean? You get a certain percentile, you get into the school. And they were mm-hmm. just beasting it out, just killing it. Mm-hmm. And African Americans were not doing as well. The number of uh, African, the percentage of African Americans was like dipping down, I mean, into like low single digits. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I read that piece, and the, the central character, as I recall, in the piece was this kid who had just come over and was staying with his grandparents, like above, like they lived above a, a laundromat or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was just study. I mean, he was just studying like hell, and it just struck me as that is the exact kind of person you want in America, right? Like it's very laudable. Sure. Um, and then at the end of the story, uh, this African American woman is talking about her daughter. She basically says, you know, I don't feel like my daughter should have to study Sunday is Sunday for a test to get into a good school. And it's annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, one of the things, you know, you, you believe in about America is this idea of competition. You can't, like, say, I'm not going to compete. I mean, I shouldn't have to compete, which is how it struck me initially. Uh-huh. And then I went to sleep, and I, you know, woke up. And, um, you know, the, the quote was still bothering me, and I was still processing it. Was I being too hard on her or what? And um, as I thought about it, one of the things that became clear was that, well, there are places in this country where you don't have to take a test to go to a good school. And people live there, you know, and some of them are here, you know, in, in New York City and outside of New York City. Yeah, or like Marin County right. or something. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Her problem is that she lives a certain place and therefore, you know, it has to be forced into this thing. And she lives a certain place because there have been, you know, in the past there were certain laws uh, passed about where folks should live, where investment would be, where investment would not be. And I had had an interest in housing. I had been kind of, you know, like flirting around with housing a lot. And I read some books, Kenneth Jackson's History of the Suburbs, um, Crabgrass Frontier was very influential. You know, I kind of knew and I knew about redlining, you know, and I knew that there, you know, that there probably, you know, I had read like articles from time to time saying there, was, there could probably be a case made for reparations just on housing discrimination alone. Like uh-huh. You just left everything out and you just said housing discrimination. Those people are still alive. You know, it's quite a bit of money. We, we know the government did it. We can prove it, you know. And it all came together that, that, like, housing was really the basis of, of, you know, all of these other things. You know, there's a, um, we're here in Dumbo right now, you know, in Brooklyn. And one of the other things that was going on at the time was this discussion about gentrification. Yeah. And I would read these you stories. You mean, was this, was this, like, the Spike Lee? This thing? before. No, that came later. Yeah, yeah, yeah that came later. This is before. before that. This is before that. But, you know, it was a lot of angst about Brooklyn. A lot there of always, angst. There has, yeah, that's 10 yeah, years. Right, right. There always more. is, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Same about Harlem. I mean, there's always just this angst, right? But I always felt like there was a shallowness to the to the discussion. Like there was something that wasn't being said. And the big thing was that the people who were living there did not have much money. You know what I mean? Like that was really the bottom line. They didn't have much money, didn't have much stability to their lives and couldn't, you know, do certain things. And it really came to me that that, that you know, that there was policy involved in that. Uh-huh. And that was basically the initial pitch I sent. You know, we should make a case for reparations based on the fact we know we have identifiable policy in recent memory that we know affected African-Americans a certain way. We really actually don't even have to go back to slavery. We could just make this a 20th century story and make the case. And the thing I knew um, then was that I could find people who are alive, right? Like that this, this would not have to be this old musty thing, that there would be people who are living right now. Who had been subjected to those policies. Yep, 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 who you could make a claim on their behalf. I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, because, you know, you, people say essay, yeah, and a certain thing hangs over that. But to me, and I think I think this is true. I've been going back through all this James Baldwin, but I, and wondering about this. I think this is true for most great essays. I mean, you just can't get away from narrative. You know, you gotta you, you gotta tell the story. You know, you can't you know just assemble some facts and you know just put it like thematically. It's always compelling to hear a story, and so um, I knew that I was gonna have to find some people. Yeah, you know, to, was, to, to to pin that story. Yeah, I was wondering that. So it was never really an option to just write a write a straight essay. Uh, I'm just going to make an argument for reparations. It's not going to be about any individual people. I didn't people. think anybody would want to read that. I didn't really want to read that. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I guess like that, that fear of a black president story is more essayistic. But Shirley Sherrod is in there and there's the arc of her life in there, you know. Um, and there's, a, there's also a character, like the president is a character. Right, the president is a character. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's just, you know, I've read a lot of academic papers going up to this, right, that were really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, the lack of living, breathing people who are around, who can say, this happened to me right here and here is how it affected me. I just, I, I, I think that's so important. I mean, I, you know, story is king. I mean, and this this really taught me that. Like, at the end of the day, it's just... um. It is. It's just, you know, you need a narrative. You need to tell people stories. It's how, um, I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's, you know, the complete way we, you know, absorb information, but it's a very, very effective way. Yeah. Um, so, no, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do a straight. And I, I knew that pretty early on. I knew I didn't want to do that. So then how did you go about finding this person? Did you already know where you wanted to look? 
No, um, I had some. In fact, I, I started. I thought I might do New York. Uh-huh. I thought Baltimore was a candidate. Detroit. I had done some reporting in Detroit. I knew Detroit was a candidate, um, and I had read about Detroit. I had done some research on Detroit, so Detroit actually was a really good candidate. But as it happened at the time, there was all these stories out there about black on black crime, quote unquote black on black crime in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And again, it was this situation where um, there was a you know a frustration, you know, because it just felt like a really really shallow conversation. And to be honest, to be honest, had I had another year, I mean, this is now you're getting like with this dream, the dream. You know, you start like with a dream of what the story looks like. And my dream is I would have found one neighborhood. I'm sorry to talk in these crass terms, but this is like how you think about it story wise. No, you're trying found, to build the story. Yeah, right, right. I would have found one neighborhood. I would have found a bunch of people who, you know, in that neighborhood who had been redlined. I would have followed all of them. You know, I would have, you know, with great specificity tried to track how redlining had affected them when they went and tried to get loans, when they, you know, didn't, what happened with those businesses. And then I would have looked at their children and grandchildren. I'm certain I would have ran into violence. You know, I'm certain I would have ran into like a murder or something like that at Mm -hmm. at which point. And that was, that was, that was the story I really wanted to tell, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and I knew that was there. You know, it's just like one of these things, you know, like, um, you know, you have this formula that there are X number, of, you know, uh, star systems in the universe <laughs> and that's X number of planets. So life is, you know, the likelihood of life is probably this. You know what I mean? So it was like that. Like I had, you know, like, the basic outline. Yeah. If you know the laws of right. this universe. Right. So you know that redlining exists. You know right. this is what happened in a policy right. sense. Right. You right. know that person exists. Right. 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 And so then it was just, a, a, you know, a, a measure of trying to find them, you know. And had I taken more time, I think I would have, you know. And that, that would have been an even more compelling story. But. Well, this character is pretty amazing. I mean, this guy yeah. Clyde Ross. Yeah, Clyde yeah, Ross, yeah. Is that right? Clyde Ross, that's his name. Um, and so that helped me boil it down to Chicago. And then, you know, Chicago has been more studied than any other, you know, city in terms of by sociologists. I mean, it's just like the most studied city and the most studied major city uh-huh. in the country. And so there was like just an abundance of research and history and sociology on Chicago that you could just pick up. Um, and one of the things I picked up was uh, a book by this woman, Burl Satter, called uh, Family Properties. And... Clyde Ross is interviewed in there, and a few other people are interviewed in there. And I called her at the time, after I finished her book, and I said, are any of the people in your book still alive? And she said, I, you know, I don't know, because she had published it like about six or seven years ago. She said, hmm. I don't know, but I'll hook you up with this guy, Jack McNamara. He was one of the big organizers. And so, she, you know, we plugged that in. The other thing I found in reading the book is one of her sources, um, I don't want to say a total source, but one of her sources um, was an Atlantic article on redlining. That ran 40 years ago. Yeah, it's referenced in the, in yeah. the piece. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And where they interview Clyde Ross. Clyde Ross was in, you know, was in that Atlantic story. So it's like funny to like go see somebody, you know, who gave your magazine an interview when he was in his 50s and you come back and he's 90. Did he remember the other reporter oh, yeah. coming back? Yeah, 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 yeah. He remembered the story. He yeah. remembered being interviewed and he remembered the story very much so. Because it was a big deal for them. I mean, this, you know, big magazine puts it on the cover, 30,000. I mean, it was longer than mine. I mean, it was like 30,000 words. I mean, it was a huge deal for them for that to happen. In fact, Jack had a copy of the actual magazine, a physical copy of the paper magazine <laughs> from that time. Like, not a, fu- not a you know, a photocopy or anything. He had the actual magazine. So, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was weird. So, we found them. We actually, we, we didn't just find him. We, you know, I found a bunch of people. Some of them were people who had been part of the uh, CB out of contract buyers league, and others of them were the children of people. But Mr. Ross was the first person I interviewed. And did he, you know, whenever I feel like a lot of times when you do a story and you you go to interview someone, people tend to ask, you know, well, okay, but what's your angle? I want to know what your angle is on this story. No one asked but, me that. You yeah. Know what I, did you ever? Did you? So did you talk to him about what the story was about, or did you just say, I want to know your story? No, 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 no. And to be honest, I had an ethical conundrum about that. Like, did I? Should I have to? Uh-huh. You know, because I didn't want like I didn't want like that to be the focus. I just wanted to know what happened. Yeah. You know, and I didn't really want to get into like a, a theoretical, you know, debate, you know, about reparations. I just wanted to know what had happened. I think, like, had I felt like I was going to say something, like, bad, like, maybe he was going to come across bad in the story or something like that, I would have been like, okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. But I knew I wasn't, like, doing a hit piece on any of these people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I knew it wasn't, like, you know, a situation like that. So I, I, I didn't. Um, I thought about that quite a bit, though. Like, I went back and forth about whether I should or shouldn't, you know. It's funny. He was interviewed, and he was like, it's totally impractical. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, no, he very much appreciated the story. You know, we've been in contact. But he was like, he was like, no, it's a good idea, but it's better to be practical. You know? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But they interviewed, they also they interviewed him. Uh, another publication interviewed uh, Ms. Ethel Weatherspoon. 
And she was forced. She was like, we need community programs. We need this. We need that. And then her daughter, it's very interesting because her daughter was like, I never thought about it in terms of reparations until I read that. Hmm. And, and the interesting thing is her daughter said, I started remembering like all the things I did as a kid, like all the activities, all my sports. And all my parents were never there because they were working. Yeah. You know, because they had to keep up with this contract. Yeah. You know, um, so no, it was it was it was interesting. It was interesting. It was the right thing to do, but it was one of those like Janet Malcolm moments. Hey folks, just pausing for one second to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors, which is I Am Zlatan. Uh, it's a book. It's out from Random House right now. And if you don't know Zlatan Ibrahimovic, uh, then you don't know soccer. He is one of the best players in the world. He plays for Sweden. He's played for all the top teams. He's scored some of the top goals. In fact, maybe the best goal ever scored, possibly against England a couple of years ago. Uh, but he also has a really interesting backstory. He grew up uh, in difficult circumstances in Sweden. His parents are uh, are Balkan immigrants, and uh, he just has a lot of funny and insightful things to say, and his, uh, and his childhood was quite interesting. So you should check out the book. There's also an excerpt up in the show notes, and Random House has been kind enough to give us 20 signed copies so if you email editors at longform.org, subject line, I am Zlatan, you'll get a chance to get one of those copies. We'll send it to you. But you should go out and check out the book either way. If you are at all interested in sports and sports biography, it's really, really great book. Now back to the interview with ta Yeah, You're taking these stories and you're going to fold them into a larger argument about something mm-hmm. that's very, very big. It's mm-hmm. about the whole scope of American history. Mm-hmm. And will their stories stand up to that? There's right. like that question. Right. And then there's a the question of sort of these individual people, someone's going to, assuming the story blows up when right. it comes out, people right. are going to come interview them. Like, right. are they ready for that? Are they okay right. with that? And right. it sounds like these people were, they were fine with well, that. Well, they knew, they knew, to, to, they knew it was going to be big. I did yeah. want them. I, I definitely, <laughs> I, I want, although more came to them than I thought. Like uh-huh. they knew, like we brought video cameras into their houses. Oh, right. That's right. I mean, so we video. In fact, I came back, I interviewed them once and then we came. So I interviewed them spring of 2013. I wrote the draft and we came back in December of 2013. The other thing I did do is I shared the draft. This is something I never do. Uh-huh. But I shared the draft with Jack who had organized uh, everybody. Um, because um, I guess at that point I did feel like somebody should know. I did sort of feel like that, but I had to drive. I shared with him because I just, you know, he had, you know, organized a CBR, and I just wanted to make sure I was, you know, treating them right at least, you know, even if he wasn't for reparations. But they knew it was going to be like a huge thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's become huger than I thought, but they knew that like they were going to be, you know, their videos were going to be up online, their faces were going to be online, um, that we were going to spend quite a bit of time talking. And we obviously sent photographers. You know, um, and I think I, I'm pretty sure I told him at that point that it was going to be a cover too, because I knew it, I knew we knew by then that it was going to be on the cover, and so yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I told them. How know? long is it? Jesus, almost 16. I think it's like 15 something. You know, it's funny. I turned in my first draft was like 13, and I think this this day I think I told you they did the same thing with the Fear of the Black President. This is special. I mean, they were just like, you need more. What was the reporting period like? So I read from. Um, t- so I start, I think, in like November 2012, and I probably read until the spring. You count talking to historians as part of the reporting, or you just count talking yeah. to the people. Research, okay, yeah. so research reporting, yeah. Okay, all right. So I I, I read, you know, probably up until uh, uh, late winter, early spring, Marchish. Uh, called people who you know started having you know interviews with people who were in the know on the yeah. racket, off the racket about that time, and went out to Chicago at that time. Once we had a draft, like once we, you know, an edited draft and we knew this was what was going in the magazine. Um, but before we got quite the fact check, I sent it out to all the historians and sociologists who I talked to. Uh, that was one thing I was actually really interested in that that interplay, because obviously this is an area that's been written about a lot in history. Right. Did you, was there a point at which where you felt like I'm taking on something that so many people have addressed? Yeah. And how am I going to, you know, how did you solve the problem? Like, how am I going to get to something new? in this area or did it have to be something new was it more like translating from an academic world discussion right into right a sort of wider world so it's two things i mean this is you know it just goes back to the power of narrative you know didn't i was obsessed with this idea okay if it's housing and it's people that's alive that's gonna be something that people had not suspected they usually did the arguments about slavery 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 and that's it but if you can you know make it something new right now living people i i, I knew that would get people 
But at the same time, I mean, that is a little too clever by half. I think, frankly, man, I just think it's the, it's the fact that the first, that it just leads with somebody who's right there, mm-hmm. like people. I mean, I just think that, you know, if you start with people and not, I mean, in one of my older drafts, Mr. Ross didn't even enter into the picture until like 10,000 words, which would have been a huge mistake. You know, um, and I, I just think that that just that grabs people. I mean, you hear this dude when in 1923 did this, did that, had all this happen to him. You get to see him talking in the piece. You know, his picture right there, we got video. I mean, it's like, damn, like I got to actually confront a human. Mm-hmm. You know, and not, you know, as much as this is about some theoretical notion of MI4 reparations or not, it's actually about what do I think about this guy who's telling me he got ripped off. Mm-hmm. And I know he got ripped off, and I know he got ripped off by, you know, the government you know, to the country to which I belong. How, how do I feel about that? Like this, you know, forget black as this, you know, mass of millions of people. These individuals right here, how do I feel about them? Do I feel like, you know, people owe them anything? Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think, is the power of journalism as compared to the academy. Um, the academy has other powers, you know, that I, you know, need, needed to make use of. But journalism, because it's so... Of the particular and individuals, you know, you have this thing, anecdotes, you know, don't equal data, but anecdotes are powerful. Anecdotes are really, really powerful, you know, in a way that data just feels abstract, you know, at the same time, at the same time, I did want to make sure like when I sent, um, when it was published, I I sent it to all the sociologists, all the historians that I talked to, because I just wanted to make sure, you know, the the tangle or the, the connection, the synthesis I was making between this individual, these individuals I had interviewed and, um, the expertise, you know, was, was mm-hmm. really, really on. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, you asked me how long the reporting was. Oh, I forgot about that, yeah, too. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, reading, I probably read from August until about March, and I probably, uh, I think I took three trips to Chicago between March and May-ish, May-June-ish. And then I started writing, you know, in various bouts, and I finished in, uh, I think, uh, about a year later, by November 2013, I think I had a drive. And how much other, I mean, obviously you got the blog going at all times, mm-hmm. and then you had also did a piece that was a, more about the Civil War itself. Mm-hmm. Was that in that process, or was, had that piece already come no, out? No, I think I had published that piece. I think that piece was published, actually, I think the Civil War, the big Civil War piece came before the Obama piece, oh, if really? I'm recalling. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Civil War, Obama, and then that piece. Although you, you, you tangentially raised something that I I meant to say, and that is that um, by the time that reparations piece had come, I had reported out of Chicago on three, two, three, three at least two other really big pieces. Mm-hmm. And so it was like coming back to a place I knew. And that helped also. That was the other choice, you know, for, for choosing Chicago. It was like a place that I knew. And, you know, the other cool thing, I mean, you know, all praise to the Atlantic for this. I mean, even while I was running the blog, they knew that this was coming. And so there was no, like, sort of tension. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, are you, are you, you know, blogging frequently enough? And all I was blogging about was that piece anyway, for the most part. Well, it's interesting because you, you, you reference when you go back and look at the evolution. You, you're, you yourself map. this is not me figuring this out. You map the evolution of it in a more recent post. But you refer back to this post from 2010, even, where you were. Yeah, that's true. You were opposed to reparations. Yeah. And it's actually like mostly about something else. Right. Henry Louis Gates' right, article. Right, right. But then. I noticed that you're in the comments yeah. of that piece, yeah. even, and there's some of the reasoning is in there. Is it really? A little bit. I gotta go look at because that. you talk about. Do you remember? Oh yeah. Here, so well, actually, one thing in there was you were <laughs> you were going back and forth saying one of the arguments against reparations was you were saying that you, you were saying I don't I shouldn't have to pay for it. Right. Like my That's taxes shouldn't saying. have to go for it. That's what I'm saying. Pay for it, you know. Oh, um, but the other <laughs> thing was uh, my taxes shouldn't have to pay for it. <laughs> Was uh, You were saying, as opposed to sort of paying out payments, this is from the comments you said, what I find much more credible is some kind of holistic big picture investment in those neighborhoods which were devastated by redlining. Wow. So there was some, uh, there was, you were thinking at least in terms of like redlining and, yeah. and reparations at that time. But but <laughs> talk a little bit about, I mean, the, that, that methodology, we talked about this in the first podcast yeah. some, the methodology of sort of like you're throwing ideas out there, you're even getting this feedback from commenters or other people playing off it on blogs and how you then fold that into this piece that's, you know, X thousand words. Yeah, um, that's fascinating. Just a quick thing on that. Like, I'm thinking about that now, and this is, like, one of the cool things about reading and, like, researching, you know, even before you go to the reporter. I mean, one of the great pieces I read was by this law professor, um, and he 
the article is titled, I think, Taking Conservatives Seriously on Affirmative Action and Reparations. And he goes through every single argument, including one of those, the argument I just made about mm-hmm. taxes. And this must, I don't know if I was thinking this at the time, but in the article, he talks about how, like, Japanese Americans who got reparations are part of the complaint class and also part of the people who receive it. Uh-huh. And if you think about it, that's true at any time. Like, if, you know, if I go outside and I get beat up by the cops and I sue New York City, well, part of my tax dollars are going to pay, right, right. you know, whatever my settlement is. So, I mean, but that was, I remember reading that and thinking about that and being like, wow, that's really deep. Um, you mentioned the sort of like academic journalist divide. Mm-hmm. But when I read the piece, I thought this piece was, in many ways, it read like an indictment. It wow. read like a legal indictment of, uh, this is going to sound too grandiose, but like of forgetting mm-hmm. or like a legal indictment of the United States government or of a certain view of right. uh, progress as being this thing that cut right. off at a certain No, I like point. the forgetting. That's that's re- what it really is. I wondered if you thought of it in legal terms because the best indictments are also narratives in a sense, like a class right. action lawsuit. Right, right, you know, right. No, that's true. That's a the, great Here's point. the individual right. uh, that represents what happened to this group of people. Right, right. And that that is to me how it how how it kind of came. Yeah, no, not, not deliberately, but... Um, you know, I was captivated by the idea of reparations, the, the strange relationship between Americans and history. I mean, again, you know, I say this all the time, but like they're not, the idea that slavery was a long time ago and doesn't matter. But George Washington, who was even longer ago, you know, does matter, you know, that, that you know, when history flatters people, you know, we're very, you know, apt to claim it and say, yeah, yeah, it really does matter. You know, we're, you know, the greatest democracy in the world we have been for X number of years. You know, we would never say, you know, the Declaration of Independence doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. I mean, that got me beyond the African-American question and the racism question because I thought it was tied into broader notions of, like, who we are as a society. Mm-hmm. You know, and I also, you know, like, as part of the reading, I was doing all of this stuff in World War II where these issues are just huge. I mean, just absolutely, I mean, it's, you know, very, very nearly the same thing. You know, ethnic conflicts, you know, like, so like in, in, you know, the Yugoslavia, the war in Yugoslavia, you know, or the former Yugoslavia, you know, one of the inciting events is Milosevic goes to this field for a battle that happened in 1300 something and is citing this battle, you know, um, and these people are still fighting over this, you know, yeah. about who did what to who, you know, in, in history, you know, um, this whole notion in World War II of who was a resistor and who was a collaborator, you know, how, how are we going to remember that and how France, you know, for instance, remembers itself as, re, you know, resisting Germany, even as it, you know, handed over, you know, Jews. And that, you know, idea, you know, struck me as, as, as a problem of, of humanity. You know what I mean? As a problem of democratic governments, period. Yeah. This creates a bit of a problem because, you know, obviously I think like a lot of activists are going to use it. Right. But the writer isn't an activist. You know, it's, the writer is very selfish in many ways. You know, like a writer is like a, you know, like you're, you're more interested in. You know, like theories and what what's true and what's not. Yeah. You know, and I get people when they ask me all the time in an interview, do you think, you know, you're gonna this will affect the reparations debate? Probably not. <laughs> you know, you think this made reparations any more likely? Probably not. But that's not I mean, as har- as harsh as this sounds, that was not why I wrote it. You know, I wrote it because as I said, I was dealing with all of these questions of memory and democracy and what does that mean? I feel better because I know now. Like, I know. Like, now, like, I feel like I've solved the problem. I understand something about the world that I didn't understand before. Uh-huh. And that's why I wrote it. You know, obviously, I'm for it. I mean, I hope, you know, H.R. 40 gets passed. But that that's not, like, the metric of the success of that piece for me. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because when I listened to the last time we talked, you mentioned sort of solutionism as a thing that you right. didn't really believe in in journalism. That, right. You know, Even that, though I just proposed a solution, right? <laughs> but this one does propose a solution. <laughs> yeah, but what you're partly saying, it seems now, is that the solution is actually the answer to a question. It's not you're not actually actively lobbying for the solution. No, and I, I really I can. It's not really my job. Yeah. You know, that's not my role. You know, my role is to try to answer questions. I mean, it doesn't mean I shouldn't have opinions, you know, but it just feels like a distinctly the advocate is actually trying to get things to change. Um that can be in conflict with, you know, telling the truth. For instance, I mean, I don't mean this in a bad way. If you think everything is doomed and your side is going to lose, if you actually think that in your darkest moments, you can't really say that as an activist. But I think writers and journalists have a responsibility to talk like that. Uh-huh. Listen, the guy who gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and says, I'm going to beat this thing is not wrong. You know, he's not wrong. Now, he may not be, you know, up to date under the scientific evidence. You know, science might have something. But, I mean, that's not wrong, right? Like, that's a, you know, or any kind of, that's a, you know, that we applaud that and we should applaud that. But it's not the doctor's job to say you're going to beat this thing. 
Yeah. You know, unless the doctor thinks you're going to beat this thing. You know, the doctor has a different role. The doctor's supposed to, you know, say something else. And the doctor probably should not say, you shouldn't, you know, think you're going to beat this thing. Hey, you know, you, 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 you do it, you know. You need to do it in order to live, in order to get, you know, as much as you can out of, out of your days. And so I just, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's a different thing. You know, it's not, you know, I'm not a Senate aide, right. you know. <laughs> you know? So, so before, I want to talk about the sort of reaction to it and what that's that's mm-hmm. been like. But when, you know, before it actually landed, I feel like you've written up about enough hot button issues over your uh, <laughs> career that you probably wouldn't be. I would assume you wouldn't be like fretting about the reaction, but did this feel bigger? Did this feel like this was oh, going to yeah. land in a way that you thought, oh, shit, this thing's really coming out tomorrow? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. And then, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know how you, did you see the trailer when we shot it out? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. So then the, the, the other thing is there was a lot of hype. Yeah. Yeah. They, like, they did they, a good job yeah, of, no, of they did. this thing is coming. Right. Right. But it better be good if you're going to do all of that. <laughs> Like that's you true, really better true. have that's a product a to sell if you're gonna if you're gonna say, you know, hey, here's a trailer for an article. It really, you really better have it. But I mean, the cool thing, and, and this is, you know, and I probably was a little too snappy when I was going through this process. But man, we have fact checked that thing within an inch of its life. Uh-huh. You know, for that and if, you know every little thing. I mean, you know, making changes up to the last and smallest changes too. But things that you know, can we make this better? I did. I had a sense that, my God, this is going to be big. I mean, this is, I, I think it's going to be big, especially after the trail. I was like, oh, this is really going to be big. In terms of the reaction, uh, am I surprised by the reaction? Yes. Yes. I'm not so much surprised by the rebuttals. You know, with a couple exceptions, um, the rebuttals have pretty much been what I expected. Um, but the reaction, I mean, it, it does, you know, give you some hope. Like in long form journalism, if you write an 800 word column advocating for reparation, you, you just, it's not going to do what this did. Mm-hmm. It's just not. You know, I mean, people are going to get upset and they're going to tweet about it back and forth for a little while and then that's going to be the end of it. Um, but this, I, th- I think, you know, for what it's worth, actually did something a little more. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, it says something about putting an idea on the cover like that, right? And then writing it, you know, at that sort of length and that, in that sort of deep way that you can still have impact. And I don't know, like, too many areas of society where you can do it like that, you know? Yeah, especially something like this. I mean, this this very, very easily feeds into ideas that people already have. People That's right. Just dismiss yes, 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 offhand, yes. Like, yes. Are we still talking about this? Yes, like, yes, I thought yes. we already. Yeah. So the idea, I, you know, I was shocked that so many people took it seriously. I was, I was, I was surprised by that, and I included the rebuttals in that. Yeah. Um, I think people did, you know, for the most part, take it seriously. You know, um, that surprised me i don't know i think that's in part testament to like the atlantic's heritage that's you know been around for so long um that it would put something like that on the cover that it would do it at that length i think people and also it quite obvious even in the trail it just doesn't begin with slaves you know what i mean like it just doesn't it's like right. all right so what is this you're gonna make a case for reparation but why are we talking about like the west side of chicago <laughs> like why are we talking about houses you know and i thought they were very clever in the trailer for doing that you know i mean like they start you know talking about you know this poor neighborhood housing you know, you hear this woman's voice talking about housing. But it's like, wait, how does this relate to slavery? Yeah. Well, the piece does that, too. I mean, I feel like the piece builds builds around a story. Right. And the the sort of pregame hype to it, you knew, I, I knew it was about reparations going into it. But right. I, I think if you didn't, and obviously the, the title is The Case of Reparations. Right. <laughs> but it does take a long time to get yeah. to that issue. Yeah, no, and it did. How did that construction come about? Was that you working with the editor or was that? No. Um, I, uh, as you know, I said, I had like 5,000, you know, maybe 10,000 words before, before I even got the story. It's interesting. You just made the point about it feeling like a legal brief. Well, they had actually filed legal briefs. Mm-hmm. You know, they had actually, you know, made, made these class action lawsuits. And, you know, Burl Satter, who had all of the files, was very nice enough to send me, you know, some of the court files. And I... It's so funny you say that because when I started reading them, I said, this is the case for reparations. That's what they're actually saying. They don't use the word reparations, but what they say is you have done something to, as they used the parlance at the time, the Negro race. You've tried to rob us. We want not just the money from our, for our homes. We want interest on that. Mm-hmm. You know, we want, like they name this listed. It's clearly, you know, a reparations, a claim made on behalf of people based on racism, you know, who are exploited in a certain way. And they want, you know, cash remuneration for that. So I read that. And, you know, knowing Mr. Ross had been involved, I was like, oh, he basically asked for reparations. That's what he did. You know, and I knew that. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was by, you know, putting that word on his story, you know, even though they don't say it in the suit, 
Like it immediately made it knowable. Like it's like, oh, okay, maybe he does deserve it. Yeah. You know, like, okay, he did get ripped off and they all got ripped off and he's asking for reparations. Well, is that crazy? Is he really, is what he's asking for really crazy? And then the fact that he didn't get it. Right. And the way that he didn't get it and the fact that the guy, you know, made that comment about Brown versus the boy where it's like, oh, Jesus, come on. You know, I don't want to talk bad about anybody, but um, I, I will. I will say this: the New York Times they did this um, room for debate series. Yeah, I saw had. that. And it's like you just can't you can't get at it in that way. Yeah, you they can't were like just two hundred, three hundred. Yeah, I mean, you know, you do this like dueling rhetoric back and forth, but it's so. I mean, whether you are for or against, it's just unsatisfying. You know, you it just you don't really you can't get to the meat of the thing. You can't like, I don't know. It just feels really like. Like cable news, you know what I mean? Like two people shouting back and forth, and then that's that. Okay, so now, you know, I mean, who's going to be affected by that? Who's going to, you know, whether you come away feeling you're for it or not, who's going to feel like, damn, that was a hell of a thing I just went through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how I feel when when I read, like, you know, like great journalism. I mean, I just walk away with, like, this really haunting feeling. Yeah. You know, and that's what you really want to give the reader. That's that's how I felt. I felt terrible good. after I read the Good, that's great. That that's, that's what we exist for. <laughs> but it's funny you say that about finding the legal documents uh, for the case that they had pursued. Mm-hmm. Because if that, you, yeah, I know I said it sounded like a legal brief itself, but just to take it from another perspective, that's not, it's a crime story. Like what you're writing is a yeah, crime story. Is and a crime when you're story, writing right. a crime story and you find this indictment that's already written, right. and you're like, that's my story right, right. there. That's it right there. They, they yeah, already yeah, did it for yeah, me. Yeah. I just have to try yeah. to make it more you know, lyrical somehow. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. you're right. I mean, it's funny. We were supposed to do this thing, and we never got around to it on Kwame Kilpatrick. And if you ever read the indictment on Kwame Kilpatrick, it's a novel. <laughs> I mean, it's just a novel. <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, my God, this is great. That's the story right there. It's all laid out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted to dip into something else that's sort of like, came about during this period before the piece came out, which mm. is that you got into like a running debate with, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, is it Jonathan Chait? Chait, yes, Chait. Yeah, uh-huh. at New York Magazine. Right. Some other people weighed in. Right. And, um, God, you know I had this thing in the back pocket the whole time. Yeah, that, like, that's it was one thing I was wondering. There. I was actually, I think I might have been, like, if I wasn't fact-checking, I was going through edits on it at that point while this whole thing was going on. I some facts of it. A little bit, yeah, it did, it did, it did. You're right, you're right, you're right. And I think my editors were probably pissed. I mean, maybe not pissed, but just like don't let too much out. <laughs> you know, I, we don't necessarily need to get into the substance of that debate necessarily. But mm. one thing that interests me is that you know later on in it, you wrote because people were saying things like, especially like on Andrew Sullivan's blog. I mean, you posted a bunch of letters that you mm-hmm. referred to, and that's people, you know referring to you and saying like well what happened to this guy and like he used to be full of hope and now he's not anymore (laughs) and like you have written about yourself a lot and and how you feel about the world and it and it changes and then having these people say like we used to be a a guy that i liked more somehow you know what like how did you feel about that do you feel like well you know fuck those people (laughs) i mean basically (laughs) but um I, i think like two things happens um and this is what I learned, and I say particularly as an African-American writer, that there's a distance between why people come to you and why you do what you do. And I haven't quite figured out how to reconcile that yet. Um, I used to resent it a lot. So many people live in this country and understand that racism is a problem in this country and are really, really bothered, many white people, and are really, really bothered by it. And they have intimates, family members, friends, who they feel say or do racist things or not, and, like, and it just it really, really bothers them. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm saying this because it's become clear in my in my blogging from some of the responses. And some of these people live in places where there's just no one else. They don't live in New York. There's no one else to talk to about this. Mm-hmm. Like deep in their heart and their bones, they just feel like there's some injustice happening. But there's, they don't live in places to talk. And I think for a lot of those people, again, just, you know, thinking about some of the letters I've gotten, this is like an oasis. So it's like, oh, my God, you know, here is, you know, some of the things I'm concerned about. And not only that, like you're explaining to me why. They might happen and why some of the things I'm being told over here that I felt were wrong. Right. Really, really were wrong. And people feel grateful, you know. Um, and I think on top of that, they also feel like um, maybe I can, you know, get these facts and give them to this other group of people over here. Maybe I can actually change something. Mm-hmm. But I-, I think this is true. I don't know this is true. I'm still working this out. So, I mean, anybody who hears this, don't be too hard on me. I think the writer hopes for change, but the writer can't. Writers can't really assume that their work is going to cause change. Like, you know, um, Elizabeth Colbert, right, one of my one of my favorites. I mean, mm-hmm. just absolute, absolute favorites. You know, I, I just I adore her work on climate change. 
have you had her on? We it? haven't yet, but, I, but okay. she's definitely up on the list. If she ever comes, I just want you to ask her: Does she think her work is going to change anything? Mm-hmm. Like, I'd be very interested in that. In that and does is that why she's doing it? Does she believe, like, you know, if she had to assess whether we were going to get this fixed or not, does she think she's going to play a significant role in getting it fixed? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I just know as a writer, that just seems like a you know a, a, um, a, a prescription for slitting your wrist. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it just you 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 just can't know. I mean, I just it'd be it'd be like being a film reviewer and hoping to affect the box office. You know what I mean? Like right. that that would be a really bad reason to be a film reviewer. You you just it's just so much that is outside of your control. So oftentimes, people who I think are readers maybe have more faith in the information than writers themselves do. I, I know they have more faith of it th- than I do. You know, all I can do is honestly reflect how I'm feeling at the time about what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And that's the extent of it. But if you're feeling maybe hopeful, or people perceive you as feeling hopeful at some point, right? And then you're not. And then you, you know, feel differently. Well, then they're, they're not getting what they came. You know, they're, they're not getting what they paid for as far as they concerned. Or didn't pay for. <laughs> didn't pay for didn't in this pay case. For, right? <laughs> didn't pay for in our case. Um I always thought that what I was giving people was, you know, especially on the blog, you have now had the opportunity to, you know, um, if this you think this is helpful, you know, if you think this is entertaining or, you know, amusing or whatever, you know, you, you're going to, you know, watch me, you know, think this through. And I can't tell you where it's going to go. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know where this ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely, you know, you shouldn't make any bets that at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you feel better. And that goes back to this point about solutionism, right? Yeah. I mean, that just gets back to it. I mean, there's this idea that writers write. And at the end of a great piece of writing, you're supposed to propose something that is implementable and can change the world. But, you know, as I think about all the writing I love, fiction or nonfiction, it, it very rarely does that. Yeah. You know, often it leaves you like with just like a sick feeling, like we're fucked. And, I, you know, that might lead, I guess some people say, well, what's the purpose of writing, right? But, like, you know, it's good to know. Like, I feel yeah. better. Like, I'm going to die anyway. <laughs> you know? Now, now I know. You know, I'll die knowing now. <laughs> Were you surprised to find... Because I, I thought one of the surprising things was not only that um, that your readers might have expectations, but mm-hmm. these were actually, like, other writers really looking at you as, like, a public intellectual who sort of, like, had been telling us one thing or leading mm-hmm. us down one path. Yeah, I know. The right. path of everything's good now or there's lots of hope and now we're suddenly saying like no everything's fucked yeah were you surprised to hear that from other i've I've read from between the lines or maybe even explicitly yeah i sort of read some frustration with that yeah 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 between the lines and explicitly um yes i was um surprised um i guess i never perceived myself as saying everything's going to be great yeah like, I, that was not what I thought I was doing, you know? But again, I mean, there's some distance between what you're doing and what other... Clearly, other people did, and a, and a, and a, and a number of them did. People reacted really... I remember the first time I wrote that, you know? Like, I, it became a thing, but... And I believe the first time I wrote it was in the course of doing this reparations piece. Like, mm-hmm. it's tough to explain. But if you, if, you t- if you take a country, and, you know, you have to document this in detail. I mean, you just don't... And you see the numbers, you say, all right, X number, you know, people, slaves were traded, and that got X number of money. No, it's very different when you read some dude's letter mm-hmm. <laughs> about him holding his wife's hand as she was being led into the slave cuff. I mean, I, that just, that's something different. And then you realize that this was like regular practice, right? And not just regular practice, but essential to the country that you live in. So you confront it on a macro level and a micro level, and then you realize that people haven't even faced up to that, right? And then you realize that there were things after that that happened. I mean, just forget, forget slavery. You take the 20th century. One of my uh, big texts for this book was um, Making the Second Ghetto by Arnold Hearst, all about uh, sh- Chicago redlining mm-hmm. housing segregation. There's a whole wave of riots that happened in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that no one talks about. It's like, I mean, in Chicago, in a yeah. big city, you know, where folks were trying to move in, I'm moving to neighborhoods, people are being bombed. I mean, like, they're actual bombs. And it's like, we don't even know that happened. And you take all of that. I mean, how how can you seriously say, I mean, it's one thing if we sit here, you know, and debate and say, well, we can do this or we can't do this. But when you see repeatedly, you know, a kind of looking away, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I would stretch that out to say, you know, again, you know, as I was doing this, I was, you know, looking towards Europe and thinking about, you know, some of the problems over there. And I mean, can anybody safely say that Europe will someday not be anti-Semitic? I mean, can somebody say that? Somebody really, I mean, would you, you know, you looked at the history, would you really conclude, you know, one day I think they'll get over it. 
You know, I mean, you hope so. <laughs> but would that be an actual informed, serious opinion? I mean, if you're an activist, you know, over in Europe, you know, against, yeah. you know, if you're an anti-racist activist in Europe, you know, you probably would say that, right? But if your job is to, to diagnose and say, here's what I think is going to happen. Here's what I think has been happening. I don't know. I don't know. So you were immersed in all that when this sort of debate was happening. Yeah, yeah, until... yeah. And again, I couldn't tell anybody. I yeah. felt so bad. <laughs> yeah, I felt so bad. But it was like, man, listen, I, I've been sent with this. I went to this dude's house at Clyde Rock. I went to this house. I think I probably blog. I think I blogged about him, but did not say his name and maybe did not tell all of his story. Yeah. But like, kind of obliquely blogged about it. You, I mean, you sit with a ninety-one-year-old dude, <laughs> and he tells you they took my horse and put it on a racetrack. I mean, what what the hell can you do with that? His brother, that was... Oh, oh my God, his was, brother. Jesus. That section was tough. You know what's interesting? I had, so we, I, He didn't tell me that in the first interview. He told me a second time we went back with cameras. So I had written a draft and that wasn't in there. Uh-huh. And then he told me that, and it's just like... And I knew as soon as he said parchment, because I had done enough reading to know what parchment was. I mean, I don't know what you do with that. You know, how can you read that and tell, you know, look this dude in the face and say, you know, everything's going to be all right. And I think I guess the other part of it, I mean, these people will die one day and it will not have been made all right in their lifetime. So for, for them, effectively, it wasn't all right. And do you do you feel like now this is I mean, obviously, still you're you're still in the middle right now of going on TV and talking about this and, yeah, you know, trying less. to engage in some of those debates. Yeah. Um, first of all, how do, how do you deal with, you know, you just wrote this mammoth piece that really tries to put people into a world and understand it. Right. And then you got to go on MSNBC right. and probably sit across from someone and try to explain that. Right. I mean, MSNBC maybe would give you more time than some right. other place, but right. are you even reluctant to do that? Because can can you can you bring it to life in those forms? Do you feel obligated to go in and kind of like defend it? I feel obligated to do it mostly on behalf of the Atlantic. Um, no, I would love to not do it at all. I mean, this is different. This is like I'm talking to somebody in the craft about the craft. That's that's different. I mean, that's like you know, um, you 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 rarely get to do that. You know what I mean? That, that's not usually what happens. You know, um, you you most people. This is very new for, and this you know, no attack against them, with a few exceptions, with a couple exceptions that I can think of. Um, it's new for them, and so you have to walk, you know, walk them through it. Um, that's that's what happens, right? You know, I you know I got other things I would love to be thinking about, and I would love to be spending my time on. But you know, um, the Atlantic invested just a shit ton of resources in this, you know, um, and a rare amount of resources in, in in this era. You know, one of the things that happened was after I wrote the pitch, and you know, I started getting into it, and I sent a couple more notes. Mm-hmm. The thing we were thinking about, and I don't think I'm, I'm I don't think I'm exposing anybody by saying this, but but what had happened was right about the time I wrote that pitch, I think Snowfall had been published. Yeah. You know, everybody was amazed by Snowfall, you yeah. know, and it was like, wow, look at this, you know. And so we, I think a lot of folks in our house were thinking, well, what could we do? Like, this is, you know, if you're going to make this in a serious way, what could we build around this to make this, like, you know, something really interesting? And the fact that they were willing to do that, I think, entails on you a certain responsibility to, to push it. So as a writer, uh, how do you feel about sort of, like, your position in your career at this point? Like, when you mm. do a piece like that, do you feel like, the the fact they're giving that space in that room, you feel established and this this has stability to it, mm-hmm. or does it make you feel I don't know like, wow, I wonder if that'll happen ever again. I mean, like when we, last time we talked, yeah. in a way you were sort of like I, I was like that, that wasn't I? No, I'm more confident. Now. I I feel I feel established. I do, I do, and yeah. I feel it's been a long, nasty road. Um, but yeah, I feel um, as long as the people I work with, you know, for this, as long as my editors and I'm pretty sure they will be you know, in place for a long time. I, I can't imagine doing, you know, much else besides this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was a deeply gratifying experience. I mean, just probably more than anything else I've ever written, you know. Um, again, I, you know, I hate to take it back here, but to have this guy here, you know, who had been interviewed, you know, when he was much, much younger, to come back, you know, and all these people actually, there were a few of them who had been interviewed, and to come back to get their stories, to pick up and see other people interviewing them now, like other people going, like like Chicago media is going to see these folks, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and really telling their story. Um, like, that has that has meaning. Like, you know, I hope HR 40 gets passed. But yeah. I really, really hope people, you know, realize that Clyde Ross lives in North Carolina. That's what I really, really hope. Yeah. You know, and that they talk to him, that they give him, you know, some of the dude that, you know, he really deserves. Um, well, that seems like an answer to your earlier question in some ways. Like, what is it? What are you writing for? Like yeah. the the policy impact or the the big picture impact 
it's fool's errand to say I'm going to It totally is. It's that. just too much. But I the mean, individual impact, the, the fact indi- that someone right. might read that right. story who's white and sort right. of think about, right. rethink how they right. thought about not just like slavery, but like right. everything that happened right. since then. Right. Or this man might have some interpersonal reaction or exposure that that, yeah. that seems possible. Yeah, yeah. To take the first thing you thought about, you know, I used to be hard on that, but it's it's happened. You know, like I used to, you know, say, well, you know, if you can't, are you trying to change white people's minds? I say, no, no, I don't, I don't care at all. I don't care at all. And I got on the subway two week or two ago, and I was getting on the train, and I had my, you know, I was going to, you know, one of the early interviews, and I had um, my earbuds in, and my music was up, and the train was packed, and it was a guy across from me, and he was trying to talk to me. And um, he was an older, like, middle-aged white dude. And I turned it down. He said, he said are, you, are you Tanisha Coates? I said, Tanahasi. He said, yeah. And then he said to me, he said, I, I had no idea. He said, I just, he said, I just, I, I had no idea. I thank you for doing what you're doing. I, I had absolutely no idea that any of this, this housing stuff, I had no idea any of this happened. And I thanked him, said thank you, you know, um, went to turn my music up again. And he said, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great service. And then... This other guy, this other white guy turns around and says, I just want to second that. You know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer downtown. I just I just really, really want to thank you for what you're doing. And that, you try to be hard-hearted. <laughs> but that, you know, I mean, that that is one of those moments where you think, damn, like, you actually can, like, this actually can do. Like, there are people who have no idea. You know, I mean, there really are. There, you know, certainly people who are willfully ignorant, but there are people who really aren't, who just really, really sincerely do not know. You know, and... Negotiating between, you know, how you feel about those two groups, like like remaining in a good space where you say, listen, some people really don't know. Yeah. You know, you can't like, you know, get into a really negative. And I, and I really have to watch myself on this, you know, saying, you know, fuck this shit. Y'all, you know, y'all know what y'all did. Blah, 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 blah. You know, no, some people really, really don't know. You know, I, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. So, you know, the expectation that, you know, everyone knows what they're being willfully blind is, is a, you know, another thing that I have to stay away from, too. Yeah. Well, it's like there could be an argument to sort of never underestimate the ignorance of Americans of their own history. Right, right, right. No, it's true. It's probably always like a little bit lower than yeah. you expect it to be. Yes, yes, yes. But I also, I, one random thing that I want to ask you about, and this relates to this like blue period stuff on your mm-hmm. blog that people talk about, is I had a theory as a regular reader of the blog <laughs> that people were saying that weirdly without mentioning it because you stopped writing about the NFL. I think that's probably it. yeah because yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like the light that yeah. was like the thing on the blog that was always yeah, like hey yeah, 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 yeah. now here's the NFL like right. go go to town in the comments right 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 but was, <laughs> talk why did you talk right about the NFL yeah and it's funny because that you know you talk about being depressed Junior Seau died man mm-hmm. and it wasn't even a Junior Seau died I mean this ties into reparations because it's really a question of you know can we face uncomfortable things Junior yeah. Seau died and I'll never forget this I was I was uh, listening to Chris Berman talk. And Chris Berman, I will never forget this. Chris Berman said, we will never know if football, you know, it's implicated in his death. And I said, man, fuck you. Yes, you will. Yes, you. It's a very easy way to know. You can know if you want to know. You know, but it was like clear that like they couldn't even grasp that. I mean, because, you know, the first thing people thought about was CTE. Yeah. Because I think like the more interesting conversation is like, okay, yeah, what if we conclude, yeah, CTE is real. This is a threat to the sport. Now, what? how are we going to live? How can we live? Can we live with that? Can we say... X number of young men are going to come into this league, going to be paid in a certain way. You know, maybe you'll have health care for the rest of your life. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But that you're giving up your brain. You should understand that. Yeah. You know, you, you are knocking, you know, a few years of, you know, life quality off of, off, of, off of your life. That's probably what you're doing. Can we, like, actually say that? And I think if we did, I, you know, I will, I will speak for myself. It would be much easier for me to watch football. I have a much easier time watching boxing than football. Mm-hmm. Because it's 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 all out there. It's like, called this punch is, drunk. I mean, we know, you. right, right, yeah. I mean, we know it's not expected that if you get hit in the head over and over again, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you know, everybody knows you probably won't be. Um, so that that was hard. I mean, and not only you know it's funny. So I not only did I stop writing about the NFL, but to the extent that I did, it was like this is so awful. Like it's a like moral catastrophe. <laughs> you know, it really did. Yeah, it turned. I mean, not yeah. for good reason. I gotta uh, find something fun to write about again. Do you? Uh, you mentioned you got other things you want to write about. Do you have mm-hmm. in the hopper right now things that are either a continuation of off the reparations piece or mm-hmm. turning to something completely new? Yeah, I got a, I got a book that's due. It's been due. I mean, I turned in a draft, and you know, I'm, I'm reworking the draft right now. And oh, here's an exclusive. I don't think I've talked about this. 
And I, I started writing this as soon as I was done the first draft of the reparations story. You know, James Baldwin, like, is one of my heroes, and he, um, very many people, again, this goes back to, like, what people think about, like, about essay. Like, yeah. they think essay, and they think somebody's sitting on his ass, like, just, you know, here's what I think about the world. I mean, Baldwin reported, man. People totally forget that. <laughs> and I, to be honest, I had, you know, forgotten that, you know? Um, yeah, but I, w- I would say I wouldn't remember that. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's not the thing you wrote, but if you, you know, you go read Nobody Knows My Name, he, one of those, like, I think the second essay is just in him some pan, at some pan-Africanist conference, literally just reporting what happened. That's huh. the entire essay. He's just yeah. saying, this. somebody said this, they said this, then there was some... Um, if you think about the fire next time, the anchor at peace, it, you know, so there's, he writes a letter to his uh, nephew. He talks about his religious convergence. And then he goes and sees Elijah Muhammad. It's reported. Yeah. You know, it's reported. I mean, but he, you know, he you know, has all sorts of interesting thoughts about that. But Baldwin is not, you know, there's another one in, uh, in Nobody Knows My Name where he goes down south and he sits with them. And he, answers, he takes on this question of why someone would want to integrate, you know, a school. And he, you know is arguing that it's not because they want to sit next to white people. And he doesn't do this by sitting on his ass. He talks to somebody's mother who's sending their kid to the school and quotes the mother, you know, yeah, all the way narrative. through. Yeah, narrative. Yeah, it's narrative. Journalism. It's narrative, totally narrative journalism. I mean, if Fire Next Time has an actual narrative arc that you can actually see in it, even though it's buried deep, it's not obvious. You can tell I've been studying this a yeah. little bit. Um, but I'm, like, entranced by that. You know so is that I mean? what your book is about? No, no, uh-huh. no, no. That inspired me, though. Oh, like, okay, it, was, okay. it was a deep inspiration to me about how, you know, if you're going to write essay, like, you should think about, like, what you're doing is actually, you know, in, 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 the, in the thing. And so, um, you know, one of the things he achieved in Fire Next Time was he was able to say, I, as an individual person and living in this point in history, this is how it feels. Not, you know, forget, you know, marches. Forget all the, the big shit you're seeing. You know, I, I'm an individual walking through Harlem. I'm an individual going to, you know, sit with the Nation of Islam. This is how it feels, you know? And there's a word that is said over and over again in that reparation story, and it's plunder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, well, how does it feel to live in a community where that's the tradition individually? Like, what is it What is it actually, I'm describing an abstract challenge, but what does it actually feel? Like, you know, take away an argument for what should be done. Take away the statistics, or let the statistics live in the background. You know, don't, don't quote them. Take away the experts or let the experts live in the background. No no quotes, no such and such as book says this. Tanahasi, you know, and this is like addressing myself as the writer, you know, you've studied this for a long time. You've thought about this. You've lived, you know, in this world. Okay, so how do you feel about it now? And just just try to write. And that's what I'm working on. It's, it's hmm. hard. You know, I'll talk to you. We're supposed to get a beer after this. I'll talk to you more about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, I literally, I got a draft of it in my bag. And, and it's tough. I mean, it's very, very tough, you know, because what you have to do is you have to find a way to inhale all of that information and find a singular voice that takes it all into account. Yeah. You know, like you got to kind of steep in it and then just sort of write, which Baldwin managed to do. You got to, you know, you have to cite people without obviously citing them. Like you have to, like, include them in a way into your actual thinking as opposed to leaning on them which you can really you know do in narrative you can quote somebody such and such in this book says this and that of course yeah but can you absorb that and you know make a deep synthesis you know and then essentially create a work of art out of it i mean that's really what he was doing i mean his stuff is it's art you know and are you are you going out to pursue more experiences and pursue more people specifically for that or do you feel like you have you it's all there i think it's there i think it's there I think it's there. Um, oh, no, I did. I did. I did. I'll tell you about it later. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I did. You're right. I forgot about that. I did. In fact, like, yeah, very much so. It's so funny you would ask that, and it's so funny that I would actually do that. I did. Huh. I did, and it's a huge part of it. Yes, I did. I forgot about that. All right. Well, when it's done, we'll have you back again. I would we'll love to come that. back. All it's right. We pleasure. should get out here because it's like 110 degrees in the studio. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I'm out of water. All right. Thanks, Matt. I really Thank appreciate you. it Thank by. you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks to ta Coates for coming in to talk to us. If you haven't read a story on the cover of this month's Atlantic or online, you should definitely do so. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern is Tim Maddox. And thanks to our sponsors, who are Tiny Letter and I Am Zlatan. Book out from Random House right now. Remember that we have 20 free copies of that book signed by Zlatan Ibrahimovic 
And if you want one, email editors at longform.org. Put Iron Zlatan in the subject line, and you'll get a chance. You'll get a chance to win one. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.